bitches. What up? What up? How's uh, how's everything going on your end? Uh, you know, slow. I feel same kind of. It's weird. Like we're, we've kind of reached a point on on the abstract end where I still have a lot of like coding work to do, but now I'm just taking a shit ton of meetings, and it's just messing up. You know when i actually am able to get stuff done and that gets into the whole sleep schedule thing so it's been uh it's been weird trying to balance the two for sure yeah you know my sleep schedule just keeps getting screwed by the fact that i have stuff happening at local hours and then well dubai plus one doesn't really screw anything up if you're in kuwait but you know having to work mm. with west coast and east coast mm. um it just sucks the thing is, I can yeah. still get a solid eight hours. It's just, it's a question of when that eight hours begins. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember you know? that. I'm a, I remember the, the year that, that I kind of worked in Kuwait. It was very much like that as well. Yeah. You, you, were, know, like, you were working solid West Coast hours and literally up all night and sleep all day. Pretty much. I mean, I think that there was a span, like not even kidding, of two weeks where I literally did not see the sun. Yeah. Like didn't see daylight, didn't see sunlight, nothing. It was just like darkness and more darkness. Yeah, I caught you hanging upside down, hissing at sunlight. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. This uh this work, this work ethic brought to you by Morbius. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This uh this sleep schedule brought to you by Nosferatu. <laughs> exactly. I don't know. I feel like that th- there's gotta be like some what is it like psychological study of just founders and VCs working ridiculous hours? I, I bet it's out there somewhere, but I wonder who gets more burnt out people who have nothing to do and therefore sleep weird hours or people who have everything to do and therefore sleep weird hours. I think honestly, it might be like a, a person by person thing for me. Like I, I, I did have a day recently where I was like, okay, I kind of blocked off the entire day, not planning on doing anything. And like it, it really bricks your brain a little bit because it's like, okay, you, you go from like meetings and tasks and fires you need to put out to just like, okay, I'm lying in bed. Yeah. just waiting for the sun to set, you know? Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I'm just uh, waiting for my next, uh, my next trip. So for the year I've got uh, Paris. Um, nice. Hold up. Oh, wait for the year. Uh, I've uh-huh. got Paris. I've got uh, Dubai, I've got Istanbul, I've got Barcelona. Um, I want to get a few more under my belt. Dude, I just want a job where I'm paid to travel. You know what I mean? Like I'll dedicate Honestly, a yeah. couple hours of that day to work and then just like give me the rest of the day to dick around. And I'm, I'm more than happy yeah. to like cover a good chunk of my costs so long as that is my job. True. And like there are, there are jobs. And a five-star that hotel. And you're covering Ooh, airfare. Interesting. Okay. I think an airfare, I'm assuming, is like, you know, nothing coach or, or, or economy, right? Yeah, honestly, I'll 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 put up with that too. I'll 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 do really? coach to Europe if it, if it means you pay like you know all my expenses for five days to like you know True. have fun in Rome or Berlin. True. I mean, I think I think those are the types of cities where you just I mean, sounds kind of sad and lonely, but you don't need people to have fun there, you know. Like Europe in, its, in and of itself is just awesome. Just yeah, I'm just around. gonna geek out over like World War II shit and like weird subculture <laughs> stuff. But yeah. uh, but so all no. the locals there, are like, why why is this dude like pointing at all the craters yeah. and laughing? 
I mean, I spent 18 to 26 in, in the States. Um, I'm going to dedicate the next, uh, the next, uh, decade to Europe, basically. I like that, but like a, like a, like a continent or, or area per decade. Why that not? It's pretty solid. Why yeah. not? I like it. It's like the rest of you can go on Twitter and bitch about your nine to five and how your wife hates <laughs> you and all that crap. And sure. I'll just, you know, rack up more Turkish airlines, sky miles or miles and smiles or whatever <laughs> it's called. And I have like a bazillion sure. now. So I don't think I ever have to pay for airfare ever again. Damn. And uh, I'll flood your Twitter with that. But speaking yeah. of Twitter. Oh yeah. Speaking of Twitter, that's uh, it's slowly turning into like, it's, it's morphing from an escape to just this massive like dick swinging contest and doom scrolling app. Someone described it as this flashlight of bad news. <laughs> flashlight. Right? It's a flash. Yeah, it's yeah. a flashlight that you hold up to your face and it's just bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. You know, Pretty doom much. scrolling. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of needs a uh, calls for the need of, of uh, goodable. I know goodable has been like a, the, the the fraction of my screen that's like actually good has mostly been just them. Um yeah. Uh, but Muhammad um, Lila's is great and I would love to have him on the show. But oh um, absolutely. He I remember he pitched me long before they had ever raised a nickel from anyone. This is like uh-huh. three or four years ago. It was a concept app. It wasn't even it was just mainly a Twitter. And um you know they launched the app and I actually got an early in early invite to the app. Um nice. You know what I did? I actually switched the place of the app on my phone. So where Twitter used to be goodable now is so that when my muscle memory clicks in and I'm bored and my brain wants a dopamine hit and I immediately click a button to get information, I end up Uh getting the most recent like goodable good news thing as opposed to uh, uh, as opposed to more uh, Twitter doom and gloom. I kind of like that, actually. That's that's I might start doing that, too. I've been. A, a very like avid follower of their Twitter account, but I think it's, it's definitely time to get the app. Um, but it's, it, uh, it's great. It's great because when you get like a 20, yeah. 30 minute scroll in the morning of here's some good tech news, here's some good news, uh, you know, on climate change and here's some uh, funny animal stuff. And here's, uh, you know, it, it, it definitely sets the mood for the day. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that too. Cause I think I still remember like, it's, it's still kind of, useful to be caught up on like world affairs and all that stuff but just not to start your day like that, that's that's a realization that I've, I've sort of been having like of course yeah. i want to know about like you know what's going on with like companies and the economy and inflation and all that stuff but maybe as i'm like you know mm-hmm. taking a break from work or something and not not trying to wake up yeah social media has know. been a disaster for humanity that's kind of true. That's why that's why I'm happy we're having this episode because that's like literally ninety yeah. percent of the stuff we're going to be talking about. But <laughs> it's 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 just it's been such a disaster for humanity. Like nobody thought that. Um, well, for starters, like you know, Facebook was where you went to meet you know friends and 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 kind of planned your weekends when you were in college. It was when I was in college, sure. like 2008. It was all about yeah. Facebook still. Um, and then you know it became the place where your your uh, grandpa gets radicalized on QAnon stuff. Um, that's been pumped out exactly. by the Russian media or by the Russian yeah. GRU or whatever. Um, yeah. Twitter has become the flashlight of bad news. Instagram has been where teenage girls go to get extreme like body dysmorphic disorder and feel terrible about themselves. Exactly. Snapchat has always been, you know, that weird kid in the corner who eats glue and I don't care about it very much. <laughs> and right. 
it's uh it's it's just been such a destructive force for humanity it is a cyclone of bullshit yeah yeah i'm kind of seeing it too because it's even like i think so so not to say that like the entire world was safe for it except the us but like coming here like and even talking to a lot of people like i am noticing how much just having an account on any of these platforms so early on in your life mm-hmm. affected a ton and and like even even i've i've spoken to a lot of founders recently where they're like you know you know the equivalent of like the whole instagram body dysmorphia thing you just mentioned yeah it's actually happening to like startup dysmorphia among founders yes. where you know like a, a founder could be chugging along with very healthy metrics at the stage that they're at and then next thing you know someone tweets out like oh I bootstrapped my company, just sold it for 10 million. And they'd be like, what, what, the, what the fuck am I doing wrong? You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of a, uh, it's sad because whatever, whatever passion you have to pursue, uh, anything, any presence on social media right now is turning into a, also basically a thing in terms of question. dysmorphia. First of all, it's like, you know, like you said, the, all the 14 year old girls who, who see pictures of, uh, uh, models that have been like retouched for hours and edited and, and airbrushed and whatever before that picture was posted. And they're thinking that it was like an off the cuff photo, unplanned selfie, yeah. right? Um, uh, yeah, and it's the same thing with, uh, like you said, with the startups. So, by the way, I speak to people who sometimes ask about like what I do, people who are outside startups or tech or even finance and just ask me, like, you know, just generally, you know, they see a couple things that I retweet every now and then. And there is this mm-hmm. assumption that I can tell like, when they're speaking to me that the default status or the default nature of any startup is that you know all the charts are up and to the right and things are going great and we're raising billions of dollars and everything is doing wonderful, right? Yeah. Whereas in reality, the overwhelming majority of your portfolio at any one time is going to be struggling, right? True. You know, the, the, there's the part of VC that they don't talk about, which is the handholding and and talking, you know, founders through difficult times and supporting them and that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, at the end of the day. We, you run through a landline and one of the mines doesn't go off and that's the one that pays off everything and all the others have like blown off your toes and they, exactly they don't talk about the carnage and they don't yeah. and it, it's the same thing with uh social media has a way of amplifying the extreme outset minority um outlier sort of uh outcome uh, yeah. and making it seem like the norm so that everybody in the true normal range feels like they're not normal yeah exactly and that's, I, I that think holds true everywhere yeah yeah it holds true across like not only industries and verticals but like I, I mean walks of life when you kind of think of it too not to get too philosophical but i think i think the interesting that you interesting thing that you touched on is in multiple points in the past in these a couple like past few episodes we have mentioned that our industry specifically like vc startups founders um they're ones where like everyone kind of quietly buries their dead right mm-hmm um and 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 you don't see a tweet you rarely see a tweet about hey by the way this thing failed here's here's why it failed uh happy to talk to anyone about it you know it's always like this failed but like screw it i'm on to the next big thing we're hiring and we're doing this and we're raising this much and it's it's always like a it's it's a grind which i respect but it's a very toxic one a little bit that that's that's making it very difficult for you know say me for example to kind of switch off you know it's it's been yeah, it's been it's been tough for sure. But before we kind of get into all of that, because again, this is basically what this entire episode's about. Right. Um, I don't know about you, but you know, there there has been a very prominent thing on my timeline recently, which is um Elon Musk buying nine point two percent of Twitter and officially oh, joining really? the board. I haven't heard of that. Yeah. That's new. <laughs> 
exactly. It wasn't on yeah. Goodable, so I didn't pick it up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, you know, you know, Musk bought nearly ten percent, joined the board, starting throwing around ideas and all that stuff. But I mean, this has kind of been good news for for quote unquote self claimed apes on Twitter and Robinhood investors mm-hmm. in Twitter alike because their stock did shoot up like what 20 something percent after hours but yeah there has been a pretty vocal community on Twitter who's seeing this as the end times of this bird app basically so like to give you a, bit, a little bit of a timeline uh Musk privately bought bought his stake um back in late March and that's around when people started noticing that he started posting a lot of questions regarding moderations and throwing out like new feature ideas on Twitter. So, for example, one of the things that the one of the moderation related tweets that he put out was um, this one, for example. So given that Twitter serves as a de facto public town square, failing to adhere to free speech principles fundamentally undermines democracy. What should be done? So kind of kind of like those open ended questions where. You know that definitely show that he's he, he's been an obsessive obsessive practitioner of free speech, um, tweeting often about opinions that have been labeled as like misinformation. Like a really long time ago, him tweeting that child children are basically essentially immune, quote unquote, to COVID, or inaccurate, like taking Tesla private. Um, and and it opens up a ton of questions about you know liability, who is to be held liable, and the two the two kind of words that pop up when you talk about social media and liability or section 230 of course um the role of twitter and moderating its content all that stuff but we can dive into that just a little bit later in a couple Mm -hmm. of minutes um regarding the second thing he's been tweeting about and this is like purely something about twitter but um most like kind of threw around ideas of an edit button finally um modifications yeah (laughs) I'm, i'm guessing you're opposed to that why, why do you need an edit button? Can you explain? Like, if the tweet sucks, delete it and then tweet it again. Because what's going to happen, yeah. what's going to happen is I'm going to tweet that, you know, I love kittens and then someone's going to retweet it and I'm going to edit it into like Hail Hitler and then someone's yeah. going to lose their job. Exactly. Anyways, back to your point. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like Twitter actually admitted that they've been working on this for the past 15 month, months. Yeah. And I think that's probably why, because they know some shit like that's going to go down. Yeah. Um, so besides the idea of the edit button, they've they've also been talking about modifications to Twitter Blue, which is Twitter's like kind of like premium service. Uh, it's a, three bucks a month that you pay uh, to to you know get a couple added perks to your experience. Um, that he he the modification that he kind of proposed was uh, one that auto verified users if they paid for that, and kind of many other ideas that seem to fall into the same two categories that every social media ought to head in. Which is kind of diversifying their revenue streams to something other than advertising, because that way you no longer need to sell your customers' data. Yeah, if that makes any sense. No, yeah, yeah, but the, yeah, I and mean, also the thing with advertising is you become absolutely beholden to your advertisers. True, true. You do you do become very reliant on them as a business, of course, and it, it's a relationship I like to describe as like Robin Hood and like Citadel, basically. Um, yeah, you know, you, you take your marching orders from your customers is, and not in a good way, but yeah, but by the way, by the way, um, mm-hmm. since we're talking about like, you know, how the other, the rest of the press functions, taking money from advertising and shit, it's hilarious to me that the people who first took issue with this, like in the media, the mainstream media happens to be WAPO, Washington post. Oh which, yeah. By the way, happens to be owned by his Royal eggheadedness, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, as if owning a major news media outlet were 
somehow uh um what's the word i'm looking for like uh, he's a billionaire he owns he owns a, a major news media outlet and then this outlet then turns around and puts out a story saying that like oh if billionaires own social media this compromises our democracy what it's like it's almost as if they're trying to right set word. up to set up you know buy some democracy on amazon prime receive it monday it's, <laughs> exactly right? yeah yeah and i think it's ridiculous also the, a lot of people in the media not just wapo to be fair are pretending that this is the first time somebody takes a significant stake in a company and then announces it publicly and takes a board seat okay first of all okay. we should clarify that twitter agreed to give elon a board seat um on the condition that he does not acquire more than 14 percent of the total float mm-hmm. so right? there's like a, a max cap sort of basically there's a reason for that so they don't want an outright takeover now with a private company there's no such thing as a takeover because you have to transact privately with people to give up their shares with a public mm-hmm. company whose shares are free, uh, freely traded on an exchange someplace i can go buy them all in in theory you know there's nobody stopping me. I don't need the consent of a specific second party. They just need to consent to the terms of whatever the exchange is giving them. You know, yeah. like for example, five dollars a share. Agree? Sure. Right. You don't. You don't need to know who's on the other side of that deal. Yeah. Um, and when when there isn't the risk of an outright takeover, there's also a diminished risk of like a board proxy battle. A board proxy battle is basically you know an an investor deciding to fund uh, campaigns of like opposing board members. Or trying to use their influence to get other board members named so that they can then have control effectively over the board of the company and therefore the company. Oh, um, interesting. So Twitter kind of like a coup. Sort of, but you know, a yeah. little more um, you know, discussed over the Capitol Grill as opposed to by sending the CIA. But right. um <laughs> right. Allegedly. Yeah, yeah. Allegedly. But, yeah. So so uh the CEO of Twitter actually just kind of put to rest any kind of concerns within the board and actually outside of the board with the investors that they were going to be stuck in a proxy battle and this is going to turn ugly and this is going to sideline Twitter's you know product pipeline and everything they wanted to do. Um, so the, the the hostile takeovers, which is, particular, is specifically what they wanted to avoid, right? That concept was not invented by Elon Musk in 2022. There's a whole industry that does this and they're called activist investors, okay? They're hedge fund people and this is their specific thesis. They take control and then they change the the you know they change some high level operating characteristics of the company. So the, there are really good examples of activist investors like Carl Icahn. I think is like the granddaddy of them all. Um, mm-hmm. There's also Bill Ackman who's an activist investor. Oh yeah, Bill Ackman's a big a big one too. Yeah yeah. So you know they they what they do is just they go on the market and they buy larger and larger stakes of public companies, um, take board seats, sometimes initiate proxy battles, sometimes do tender offers, which is basically, you know, a public offer to anyone who holds the shares to sell it to them so they can mm-hmm. consolidate control. And then they effectively take control of the company by either influencing management or replacing management. Um, Interesting. So b- both Carl Icahn, Bill Ackman, among many others, by the way, are billionaires and activist investors, but nobody seems to mention them in their ways when they start talking about what Elon Musk did. And they make it seem like it's some kind of attempted coup where he just like overthrew some Central American country so that his banana empire can can take over. It's right. it, it, it's it's not a shady tactic. It's not the first time we've seen it. So, um, yeah, and you know now we know that he's not going to take outright control. So it remains to be seen what he tends to do with his board seat. But it, it, it's not the shit fest that make the media is making it out to be. Yeah, yeah, I I, I do. 
I do really acknowledge the fact that that is whatever the media is kind of pointing it out to be at the moment, at least that, you know, the vocal people on Twitter, whether they're part of a media organization or not, yeah, you know, what they're describing is such a massive undertaking, like steering the ship of, of the, especially one like that's the size of a Silicon Valley social media giant and making it take that hard of a U-turn is, is, you know, close to impossible. If we really try to think of it, just because of the amount of moving parts that it's going to need to change, you know, with, with assuming it was sort of a takeover, like Twitter's recent direction has been headed quite a bit in like, you know, integrating web three aspects into their, into their platform, like the, the, mm being able to tip to a Bitcoin wallet or an Ethereum wallet or adding NFTs as your profile picture. The show's like, wallet has still not received any Bitcoin tips, by the way. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Appreciate it. Yeah. We take Doge too, by the way. Yeah, um, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Or just, you know, money. Uh, anyways. So, or, or love. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. We're both uh, in need of that. But anyways, so... so um, like, so it sounds like a very massive undertaking and it's pretty hard to, you know, even when, when abstract was a team of four people and we thought about pivoting, it was a tough process. Now we're talking about a public company that's worth tens of billions of dollars. So, you know, it's pretty impossible, but with the aid of Elon Musk, do you think that that is something that could be possible? Cause he does have a reputation of taking companies and, very weird directions that sometimes pay off. Yeah, but again, he had control of those companies. Like he didn't start Tesla; he bought into it, and then he took control. Oh, right. right you right. know, he he started SpaceX, and he has always maintained control. Um, yeah, but he he does not control Twitter. Yeah, so so I guess like now the the big question that kind of remains is how, what's the realistic influence that he has over the direction of that company? Like he's been tweeting about edit buttons and all that stuff. So like, is he going to be able to decide that? Guessing not, but. Um, you know, decide it. No, but he can make his case at board meetings. Right. And he has this as CEOs here because CEO, you know, by law has to listen to the board. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, he, he is definitely much closer to bringing about change at Twitter than he was when he was just running Twitter polls prior to owning any shares in the company. But uh, no, th again, this is this is not a takeover. He is not an activist investor, and the CEO deal with Twitter—I mean, the Twitter CEO deal—kind of put an end to that speculation. But what was his rationale for wanting to buy the company in the first place? Right? Oh, you want to yeah. defend free speech? You want to, um, you know, they want to make sure that these platforms remain neutral and and so on and so forth. Like, you know, I, I get it, um, but is it's one of those situations where like, you know, be careful what you wish for, because one of the first issues that came up when they started talking about neutrality was that means you got to let, let Trump back on. Right. Oh, right. Yeah. That was a big one. We have to bring in that gigantic orange hurricane of lies and dog shit and allow it to fester on Twitter again and yeah. regain a few million followers. And the last time he did it, he tried to orchestrate a, a takeover of the government. And mm -hmm. apparently that wasn't even a big enough red line for some people and they still listen to them elsewhere. So, sure. you know, just how much freedom is enough freedom? And at what point does it begin to stretch the, uh, the confines of article two th of uh, section two thirty? Exactly. Yeah. That, the, that's actually kind of, a, you know, the, the big question that everyone's been talking about, at least, you know, me being in the policy community or policy Twitter, 
Um, that's just the main thing that's been thrown around. So that kind of, okay, to, to kind of segue into that a little bit. So switching gears and kind of diving back into that point that we talked about, um, most of my timeline that's not the news of Musk buying that that 9.2% has mm-hmm. basically been people who have been sounding the alarm to the fact that this is about to be another billionaire's playground, right? Someone who's clearly violated a few of Twitter's terms has now has the resources to buy a significant part of the company and decide to some to some extent, kind of decide what goes and what doesn't, keeping in mind that he doesn't have control again. So my main question when I was kind of doom scrolling through this is how are his his obsession with free speech and section 230 and the liabilities that come with it going to butt heads over time right um before we kind of head into that a little bit of that just for clarification for anyone who doesn't know um section 230 is a section in the communications decency act that was passed in congress that basically says um, a platform's not liable for the content that is posted on it for example if i post things about you know come to me for the best drugs I'm the one in trouble, not really Twitter. Um, also, your drugs and, suck. Yeah, it's it's a uh, we're we're early stage. <laughs> Discount sawdust. We're looking we're looking for funding for more product development. I'm not uh, in Colombia. <laughs> which reminds me, I I think the new season of Narcos is out. Is out. I, I binge watched that first season. I need I need to watch that more. Um, I play the theme song every time mom is, um, you know, kind of measuring out flour for something she's baking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then the cat comes along you're like, Plato Plomo. Um, a but, tiger. Um, yeah. Tiger. <laughs> Just get, get a small like paper clip chain, and, like wrap it around her. It's like, Oh, she's, she's <laughs> massive. Um, but I mean, yeah, go, going back to the point, I mean, the SEC is already breathing down musk's neck right granted yeah. in kind of a half-assed manner imo i'm still kind of convinced that no one's really quote unquote clearing his tweets before they go out because some of the stuff that he's been posting like there's no way someone read through it and basically went yeah you know uh that's that's fine to go out to your tens yeah. of millions of followers but you know with the SEC breathing down his neck, now that he's acquired a big part of what's basically America's town square, as he put it, what other agencies are going to be are going to start batting an eye? Um, you know that, that that basically brings up you know there's a lot of agencies put in place that maybe monitor Twitter or are supposed to be regulating Twitter, and now you know he's been in a public battle with the SEC for so long. Now he is getting himself into something that's also ought to be heavily regulated and everything like that. So like what, you know, the government um, scrutiny in the social media space is not coming from any particular agency so much as it's coming from Congress and their uh, subcommittees who want to grill people publicly for possibly political gain. True. True. You know? And that's where we get the the hilarious videos of, you know, 70 year old Congress w- members asking yeah. why I can't unlock my phone when I'm in the bathroom for some reason. Why does my VHS not record anymore? <laughs> I want to my mind these ninety-seven-year-old senators hopped up on drugs to remain awake or running for another six-year term. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, the, the, the things people do for taxpayer money, right? Um, I mean, I'm not an ageist. I'm just saying that, like you know, if your idea <laughs> of, of a good time is uh, 
hopping in the automobile and listening to the wireless, then maybe you should fucking retire. Um, you know, I mean, I, go I, home, I that. spend time with your velociraptors that you've had since <laughs> you were a kid. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Leave us alone. Exactly. I like that. I, I don't know. I don't know why when you said that. Do you know the scene of like Chris Pratt like calming down the Velociraptors <laughs> yeah, in Jurassic it's World? Like Chuck Grassley. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I I wish that was an actual whoever could do like. Well, do you know those like AI products where you can like basically put someone's face on another person's body? Yeah. Someone should do that. Just instead of Chris Pratt and Nancy Pelosi, but... like you know, casually speaking to a Stegosaurus, like. Oh, we evolved together in the Cretaceous. It was fine. I remember him. Exactly. And we went to high school yeah. together. Um, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> going going, going back to the point. Um, this is the point. I mean, yeah. They're kind of, kind of a, yeah. But uh, go, so the whole Section 230 thing, right? Section 230 has been like really a controversial thing. that has been brought up multiple times over the past couple of years. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of like we mentioned, especially by members of Congress looking to regulate or split up big tech. Right, seeing it as a tool to give all these corporations a, lo- a lot more. I mean, both legal pain and technical pain in 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 building scalable, accurate moderation tools. Um, the companies that kind of serve as platforms for opinions or, or public posts by any users who don't need to go through a verification process to make an account. A lot of names have been made and ruined based off of how they were going to approach this law um i don't know if you remember this but when when section 230 was really in the public eye uh not too long ago um i mean one presidential term ago um i recall like Substack's approach being very very unique in the sense that they they kind of relied on communities to shun those with questionable content and accept and amplify people with like accurate objective content or, or that type of stuff but Every single company where you could just sign up and start posting stuff, um, put out these massive, massive uh, blog posts and, and 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 like letters from the CEO saying, "This is how we're going to approach moderation. This is how we're going to do this. This is how we're going to do that. Mm-hmm. And this is the community we're going to build." Which you know, to some people, were like, "Okay, I respect that." It brought them a lot of business, but to others, it just completely ruined their names. Wait, whose name was ruined? I think there was. So the the number one, I remember Substack got a lot of a lot of crap for for what they said, which is like making it completely community based, because the number one question that people basically had was, you know, those people with questionable content that are going to be shunned are going to go and you know build their own community and they're going to bring their own people and now you're going to have a single platform with clusters of people with normal content that people are putting out. And then you have the the small, like dark, deep pockets of, you know, uh, venture bros, crazy club. conspiracy theories. But, yeah, venture bros fan club, um, exactly. That weird and, and, dead and virgins that never bathe. <laughs> exactly, who've never yeah. seen a, a a pair of clippers before. Um, never, never. Who who just keep uh, what is it? thinking of ways to throw our, our social media in turn off of a trebuchet yeah. or using a trebuchet. Um, Look, I wonder if there's like a Solomon curve looking kind of thing for, for section 230. I mean, on one hand you can like super editorialize and edit everything and, and act as like, you know, the cop on uh, you know, act as the cop on your own platform. 
And mm-hmm. in that sense, then you're basically a magazine uh, with crowdsourced content and not so much a social media That's platform, right? right? On the other hand, yeah. you can you can maintain you can do zero maintenance, not even have the most basic concept of not even like a Twitter mod or sorry a Reddit mod type of person uh, moderating content. It's just it's just keep posting until we can't pay our AWS bill anymore, right? <laughs> if right. if you take that approach, you end up with again the cyclone of dog shit. So. Mm-hmm. In in that approach, you are truly a neutral platform because you you there is zero zero editorializing, right? Mm-hmm. There is zero uh, censorship. However, yeah. um, although you won't get in trouble with the government over anything Section two thirty related, you'll definitely get in trouble with the government for hosting like oh here's this child porn board that is yeah. uh, hosted on your website and is available for everyone, and you created yeah. the website. And no matter what you say or whatever libertarian bullshit you spout, the government's going to hang you for it. Right. Exactly. Right? Like the, as, as, as controversial of a law it is, there's, there's definitely boundaries to it. Yeah. But sense. that's, this is the problem, right? Every, everyone acts like the boundaries are very clear and we all agreed on them. And anyone who kind of, you know, crosses the red line is an asshole and they knew uh-huh. what they were doing. The truth is it is a spectrum, Right. Mm-hmm. And where you fall on the spectrum happens to define your boundaries. And not everyone has the same boundaries. Now, exactly. he, he, here's the thing. And there, there is no clear definition, by the way. It's a, it's a huge blur. Like everyone understands that there is a fundamental difference between a man with a full head of hair and a man that is bald. Correct? Yeah. Right. Now, suppose I put you on the shoulders of the man with the full head of hair mm-hmm. and I gave you a pair of, twe- a pair of tweezers. And I told mm-hmm. you, keep plucking out his hairs one by one from the top of his Ouch. head, any part of his head, just keep plucking hairs. You, we will mm-hmm. never get to the point where we're like, all right, as of right this second, this is a man with a full head of hair. But after the next hair is plucked, he becomes a bald man. Oh, yeah. Get it? So somewhere yeah. along along the line, A becomes B. We just don't know where and everyone has an opinion. And it's the same thing with the question of at what point do we actually step in and start censoring things on the platform that we have built. I'll give you an yeah. example of one situation where it, it definitely backfired. So uh-huh. with, as soon as the Russian disinformation campaign uh, begun, you know, to support like Ukraine operations and psyops and that kind of a thing in uh-huh. late February, as soon as that started, uh, you started to see, uh, what was it? Uh, what was that browser called? Not brave. DuckDuckGo. Oh, yeah yeah. 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 So DuckDuckGo said basically that we're going to start editing um, the results of the search, uh, of DuckDuckGo search, um, mm-hmm. just to make sure that no Russian disinformation comes in, right? And the absolute, like, you know, neutrality purists were up in arms. They were more than ready to burn their phones in protest. You know, DuckDuckGo was supposed to be the anti Google, and here you are, like, screwing with the algorithm and the results. And so for them, even, even making sure that, you know, people don't get fooled by Russian propaganda was too far. That was censorship. While for others, it was absolutely reasonable and it fell on the right part of the spectrum that we just talked about. Yeah. So this is a problem. Where do you draw the line? Exactly. I I think it's honestly, a lot of the, the conversations about the policy around social media just revolves around that exact point. Which is, which yeah. is, you know, uh, you can post shit on 4chan that you can't post on Twitter, 
you can post stuff on Twitter that you can't post on Facebook. And it's just because everyone's so deeply ingrained into all those, all these platforms, that's a main source of frustration of like, Hey, I, I put it, I put this on this one subreddit. And then when I went to share it with my family on Facebook, I was like banned or auto banned or banned for two days. And it's like, what, what gives, you know? And I think mm-hmm. it's because all these policies on these social media platforms have been developed in silos. Um, and just basically going off of interpretations of acts and laws that exist in, in, in government or by any regulating body. And they're being spun up into their own inter- interpretations and philosophies. And this mm-hmm. is confusing from a, from an end user's perspective. Um, I, I would add also that a, a little bit of a personal anecdote here. So yeah. before abstract kind of pivoted into a, a B2B platform, um, the interesting part about us that is we were trying to build something that was along the lines of kind of an Instagram for consumers where instead of images, there were auto section snippets of legislation um, from the federal government, like Congress that users who had an account could share and send to organizations um, like uh, interest, interest groups and people that can take action on it uh, that were also signed up on the platform. Um, So that's, you know, as as seniors in high school, my co-founder, not high school, college, um, that that's the idea that my, my co-founders and I were kind of working on initially. And when we initially spoke to investors or a lot of professors at the entrepreneurship school, the number one question that kept coming up, which frankly, at the time, we didn't really have an answer to, um, was always, you know, you're dealing with politics, you're leaning into the political end. There's a spectrum on there. Where are you drawing the lines in the spectrum? What if a user posts X on your platform? What if, um, organization that's known for publishing content that's very, very horrible stuff and opinions about topic Y comes on your platform and starts like bringing all of their messed up members on it. And, you know, we didn't really have an answer to it because at the time, like this was something that, you know, companies were spending the entire endowment of the college that we were going to uh, trying to fix with, with departments and with automated tools and with all that type of stuff, you know, Granted, luckily we pivoted away from it before we got any considerable user base. But you know, the question still stands: of if if we had continued with this consumer platform and we were able to pull it off, um, Lord knows how much resources would have been spent on automating moderation tools. Think like if this was a a, a a product that leaned heavily into network effects how we'd be able to visualize networks and kind of evaluate their, the, the quality of their content to make sure. That's, it, um, that's another yeah. thing. Moderation. Yeah. You know? So again, that spectrum that I talked about, oppose, that, uh-huh. let's suppose everybody, you know, kind of agreed to a particular part of the spectrum where we draw the line, right. Then yeah. somebody needs to actually go and start booting content that crosses the line. Uh-huh. Um, now the, the thing is there are easy ways to do it with certain types of media. For example, if your line is just using a curse word, then it's very easy to build a bot that does not allow certain tweets with curse words to be posted or certain blog entries sure. or whatever, right? Yeah, it's like Clump Penguin, basically. Yeah, basically. But yeah. if, if you end up with, um, suppose you're trying to police, uh, I'll give you an example, video content, right? Or mm-hmm. photos or that kind of a thing. Sure, there are a number of AI tools that would allow you to identify items that you don't want there, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, th- there's going to be a lot of human moderation. And on a platform the size of Facebook, you're going to end up with a lot of content that needs moderating. 
And Facebook, for example, and I'm refusing to call them meta because they don't get to run away from their problems by changing their name. Um, Facebook. Smart. Um, yeah, I mean, they had this, I think it was the center in Arizona where they had like a thousand people whose job it was to go through the flagged posts to decide whether or not this was, you know, kind of, uh, uh, whether this is material they want on the platform or not. Um, right. A lot of these employees, by the way, started, you know, developing serious mental issues. A lot of them had mental problems. A lot of them had developed anxiety and depression and PTSD and that kind of a thing. Wow. Because imagine your job is to sit alone in a cubicle and watch eight hours of like violence and porn and cruelty mm. and other things that you don't want on Facebook only so that you can click, get rid of this, get rid of that, go to this, get rid of that and do that repeatedly. Yeah. Um, you know, to Facebook's credit, they actually brought in mental health professionals to help like counsel them and get them through certain, you know, traumatic events or experiences but this is what you have to do to enforce Section 230 and, ma and make sure that you're on the right side of law. You think a couple hundred people, uh, make them police these giant platforms by watching flagged videos and, and content and, and whatnot, and then basically give them mental disorders. So mm -hmm. this is, uh, yeah. So how do we fix it? Like, you know, the, the automated tools to do this do not exist yet and probably will not for a while because it's some very intricate you know, it, it, it's more to, it's more to it than scanning a string for the F word and then not allowing it to get posted. Um, exactly. Only because the gray zone in that spectrum is just so wide. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the the very interesting point about it too is that moderation alone uh, can can is is such a difficult problem that you solve, but when you throw internationalization on top of it. So considering the fact that like all this media, all these pictures, all these posts are coming in multiple different languages, uh, tens, if not hundreds of different languages and accents and slang terms and whatever it may be like, dialects. whatever you're going to need to, oh, what? Dialects. Or dialects. Yeah, exactly. So whatever tool you're going to build, if it is going to be automated, it's going to have to be like, what, like an, a Turing level AI complete problem. <laughs> you're going to need to build... Just a normal human being who understands every language and dialect in the world, who's able to scan something at like a million posts a second that have been flagged. And you, and have, delete to build, the ones that... you have to build uh, an artificial general intelligence on par yeah. with Bender from Futurama. <laughs> exactly. Not not as not as fucked up as, as Bender from Futurama. <laughs> <laughs> That's a robot with mental issues. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like he'll he'll start his own Facebook with blackjack and hookers, um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, I I think that that is the that is like the the kind of moral of the story, basically. Of you know, you know, if, if Facebook is going to continue having these manual reviewers of graphic content, then they're going to need to come to terms with the fact that you know that system, quote unquote. Is is definitely going to be uh, a, a large drain of resources and money because every part and cog in that system is human, and if you show them very very messed up stuff, they're going to be affected by it. They're going to need like health help, mental health help advice. Yo, how therapy. how do the commies do it? Do you know the the what the commies? So the Chinese like you're scanning everything you do on like WeChat, right? 
Oh, true. Yeah. And sometimes they, they do it with like stunning efficiency. Well, I think my, most, most instances of, of, of censorship on uh, Chinese platforms that I've seen, like WeChats and the other ones that are just pretty much controlled by the government, have all been like banning specific words. But then I have seen like a very few where it's like how the it was messed up, of course, but it was very much like how were you able to pull this off? I think there was one person who was like a little bit of an activist who, you know, posted pictures like very tiny, like rebellious symbols in the background. Mm-hmm. And um, next thing you know, like their family abroad try to call them, and and a Chinese like a Chinese like government officer picks up, and he's like, she can't come to the phone right now. Yeah, like yeah. It, it gets scary. Um, like, no, I'm not really sure. Like, dystopian shit. It is. It is pretty scary because it, it makes me wonder. Like, you know, like China, China basically leading the world in AI development is definitely something that's given. You also had like a major commander at the Pentagon, you know, leave his job because of how far ahead China was with this type of stuff. But I think the the one thing that's kind of scary is you're they're, they're pretty much applying it for the wrong things, right? Um, instead of applying it for, you know, health tech detecting, um, like tumors and lumps and, and x-rays like years or months before a normal doctor is able to, they're basically using it for social credits and surveillance, you know, and, and Lord knows what other, you know, innovations have come up by it, but I'm just saying I'm, I'm, I'm not super bullish on the Chinese century. Um, well, here's the thing. I, I think the century will become the Chinese century. I think we can move on because we've beaten the section 230 horse to death, right? But yeah, um, yeah I'm I'm the, the Chinese having total economic and cultural control over the world for the next century in the same sense the US had in the last in the last century is just a horrifying prospect because it normalizes some really dystopian shit. This is not to say that the American government is without without fault and does everything absolutely perfectly wonderful all the time but dude they are not the chinese yeah yeah and i mean i think you you don't need to look too far back in like either history or like you know being yeah. us like even the whole weaker situation is something that's it's pretty and i want i want to i want to rephrase that by the way i i don't mean they're not the chinese i mean they're not the chinese communist party yeah yeah the ccp specifically i mean china's awesome but ccp's like questionable <laughs> I mean, here, here's the thing. It's um, trying to find the words that will not get us canceled. Right. Nope. All those words get us canceled. But um, nice. <laughs> yeah, it, it's the, the Chinese having absolute control on what constitutes the truth is a horrifying prospect, mainly because there is no such thing as dissent when you have a single party system with a party head that cannot be changed and uh, anyone and dissent is seen as being the least patriotic as opposed to the most patriotic act anyone can partake in and dissent right. in the last like you know 30 to not no wait, no sorry dissent in the last say 10 15 years has moved more from being something that happens you know standing on soapboxes Mm-hmm. um to being something that happens on social media channels yeah so th- this is why i'm i'm always 
personally, like, you know, I didn't want to pollute this conversation by saying, Hey, these are my views on certain things, right. but I had a fear of, you know, here, here's the thing, as much as you may dislike something and want it wiped off the face of the earth because of how egregious and awful it is, mm-hmm. um, establishing the precedent that somebody has the right to take something offline because they don't like it for whatever reason is yeah. basically creating a super weapon and not really caring who has their finger on the trigger. Because today it'll be your friend. Right. Tomorrow that gun's going to come loose and then your enemy is going to have it. And then it's you who's going to be on the on the business end of the barrel. Um, yeah. And that's what censorship is. So mm-hmm. this is why I, I can't, no matter how well-intentioned I think it is, I, I can't really stand behind almost 99% of, of censorship attempts. Um, yeah. So... You know, silencing QAnon is one thing because whoever uses the tools necessary to silence the Q idiots is, you know, one day going to silence the, you know, say, I don't know, the real actual science behind actual vaccines, right? Right. And they're going to shut them up using those same tools, in this case, digital tools. Um, But, you know, for example, I am definitely in favor of wrecking anyone who's running a child pornography ring and censoring everything they have to, to do with. Because they, I mean, they're just egregious, and I don't—I can't think of anyone in the world who would be in favor of protecting them. Um, yeah. w- w- the larger the gray area, the more troublesome the prospect of, or of even discussing censorship. Mm-hmm. I feel like I feel like the the discussion of grace of of the discussion of censorship and and specifically of like the building of tools around it that that can be automated, especially if you throw in any deep tech buzzword or term like AI. Um, or even like not general intelligence, but you know, if you throw in those terms that automate it and creating a device or a tool or a system that's able to flag and silence specific opinions as yeah. messed up as they are, um, it just, again, it, it turns over, like it, it's just going to lead to a new war, which is a fight over who has control of that system. Because, you know, if say, for example, that, you know, some random group of developers or researchers in Sweden build this tool and then Russia takes over it. And then now anything about Ukraine on Twitter, anything about Ukraine on any social media platform is just gone. And we, we know nothing about what's happening there. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the mass killings, the war crimes, everything that's happening, like it's nothing's happening there all of a sudden. Yeah. Um, it's, that's pretty scary. You know, I'm not going to be aware that, that that stuff is happening, but the fact that you know you join this public tra- town square platform and you're in an age that's like the information age where you are supposed to be ingesting a lot of data and knowing about what's going on in the world, um, d- developing something that has the ability of blocking off a lot of those th- sources and streams that you may choose or may not to choose to ingest is is worrying. That's for sure. A general note on censorship, by the way, is that it just generally does not work. Not really. hardly ever no. actually works. And unfortunately, that's exactly. also true with uh, uh, you know the situations where I believe it's warranted. Mm-hmm. You know, we said you know these bans on uh, like you know child pornography have not made it go away. It's still there. Right. It's just it's a it's uh, the the point is making their life miserable. The, yeah. the people who do this, yeah. Right. So a point on 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 censorship is the Streisand effect is very real. If you ban something, people will gravitate to it, and they will set up alternate, um, 
you know, they, they, they will, they'll set up alternate distribution in order to keep getting their hands on it. Right. Yeah. Now it becomes a question of not whether or not we make this thing disappear from society. It's whether or not we can a prevent it from being pushed to criminal control and B actually exert enough force on the participants in the market where we can, like I said, make their lives hell in an attempt to dissuade them from doing what they're doing. But the idea that the content will vanish because it was banned is just nuts. Why why do we just ban crime? You know, yeah, but but, (laughs) exactly. You know, look, people in North Korea still smuggle in like Western movies that come in on flash drives tied to balloons from South Korea, despite all the controls in North Korea. Um, man, governments around the world have trouble keeping drugs out of jail, right? Jail. So, and, yeah. and these same people say they want to keep drugs out of the general community out in the free world. You're not going to control it. Yeah. You can just exert think, control on the drug dealers, but you're, exactly. you're not going to make the drugs vanish. No, not really. And I think that that's, that's, I think any sort of, here's the best way I could put it. I think any system out there in society whether it's legal or not legal is just so interconnected that as someone in a governing position trying to put any laws forward to restrict it or limit it or censor it the implications of it are just massive there's so many like if you take off one specific node in the network all those edges that that node was connected to or all those other nodes that that node was connected to are going to suffer or be affected in some way mm-hmm. if that makes any sense so like biggest example is like you know the war on drugs yep that did like in a bad way wonders to to you know all, all the lower income uh neighborhoods that now have like cops basically patrolling them all the time and it's it's just yeah there, there's no unintended consequences bans. there's a ton of yeah there's a ton of un- unintended consequences and the the big question mark here is like you don't you just don't know what the question you, you just don't know what the solution is. At the you end of the like day, full- it's much easier to pursue specific individuals for things that yeah. they have done as opposed to the activity itself, because it's very, very difficult to make any activity or any product truly disappear. Exactly. You know, I think I think so that's the big question mark in, of, in, of like in, in your example, um, huh. trying to shut down the entire cocaine trade in the 80s did nothing because more and more yeah. coke kept flowing into the states from South America and from Central America. Exactly. But what do they do? They declared war on the people running the cartels. Yeah. You know? And it's kind of the same thing that happened in like New York with the mob as well. Like when those individual crimes were, were a problem, but then uh, basically the government decided to go after the commission, which is just the, 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 the bosses of all those different crime families. Like once, right. once you tie people to it, who are, who have the lion's share of that market, no matter how mm-hmm. dark that market is, like it will do damage. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So you need to comes down to people and our platforms. Yeah, exactly. Which brings us back to Musk and Twitter, <laughs> which, you know, none of this, I think really applies to, to Musk being Twitter. Cause again, he's not really in control. Well, exactly. Musk is, is not in control, but we know what his ideas are and his tendencies are. Right. So in the case yeah. of Twitter, he just wants to stop any potential censorship from taking effect. He doesn't want Twitter yeah. to have the ability via their algorithm to basically rank things that they like at the expense of things at the expense of things that they don't like. That's that's actually one thing that I'm very curious about that you brought up. Um, mm-hmm. That reminded me of something when you brought it up. Um, 
one of Musk's things is he he told Jack that he wanted to open source Twitter's algorithms, one of Twitter's algorithms. Um, I think that would be an awesome idea, to be honest, because, well, it could be bad depending on who has access to that. But when you open source it, you're just assuming everyone's going to have access to it. Um, using those algorithms to either learn what not to do, learn what to do, um, see how you can spin it up into something that's a bit more beneficial in another competing platform is just sounds like it, it, it especially on the social media end, like it, it, it could to some extent level the playing field. There should be um, radical free choice of algorithms, right? Like yeah. you can, uh, I should be able to go to my settings and say, show me stuff from my friends first or show me things that don't mention a commercial product or show me things. That's, that's actually the funny thing that I wanted to, like I was planning on writing like a little blog post about of just one thing that I like to call the, the, the conservation of complexity in systems where it's pretty much, if you're trying to build a system, regardless of what it is, the co- complexity to build that actual system is constant. It's up to the creator of that system to shift that complexity in different stacks, right? If if I want it to be, if I want this recommendation algorithm to be completely automated, where the user doesn't even know what's being prioritized or ranked, yeah, um, you move that, it becomes more of an engineering thing on the back end of like, okay, this is gonna like we're going to make all these assumptions about every single user and we're just going to hope that they're going to be true. Mm-hmm. Now, if you move that complexity over to the front end, it just becomes a UI UX thing because yep. you know, all those switches and those settings that you talked about are going to be inputs to a specific model um, that's going to be doing the recommending for you. And then it's like, what, you know, how, how do you make that pretty on Twitter? Mm-hmm. Right. How, how do you make it uh, still a fun experience given that now you're going to have to decide what exactly you want to see and how you spin that together to something that kind of makes sense. Yeah. A lot of question mark comes up around it, but I mean, it does give you freedom. So I do, I do see the benefit of it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Social, social media is kind of like becoming less of an escape, which is why I'm kind of leaning into sports now. (laughs) There's no, there's no, uh, there's no existential things that happen in sports. It's just like, yeah, please. I think there's ball. no existential things. You clearly have not been a Red Sox fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I have. Maybe not long enough, but um, honestly, I, mean, it's, it's... I, I really miss going to games. I just miss the the mindless fun of it. Yeah. No, exactly. Like it's like it's like bases are loaded. I, I'm my heart's pounding. Please hit the ball over the fence. Like that. That's that's yeah, fun. yeah. That's... I miss the screaming and the cheese fries and the sweet Caroline. <laughs> ba, 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 ba. Ba. <laughs> time never seems so. you know you know. It's just exactly. See now that I started singing it, now I'm gonna I'm gonna it's gonna be stuck in my head for a day. I know it. <laughs> I know. I'm I'm gonna be playing it too. I like yeah. It. Sweet Sports. Caroline. <laughs> And we can only do a very poor rendition because if we actually sample it, it'll be the but the, the budget for that song's inclusion will be more than anything we have ever spent on the show since day one. Honest, honestly, yeah. And I don't think uh I don't think Dogecoin earnings can make up for that if we do buy that buy nah, those rights. You need some like Bitcoin 2010 money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what's funny like, by the way? The and, and my Foss most twins. like um my most crypto millennial uh factoid to share is mm-hmm. I have way, way more in Bitcoin than I do in fiat. Really? Like orders of magnitude more. <laughs> Jeez. 
Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I see that. It is like Bitcoin. How how's how's Bitcoin doing? Is it going? Nope. I, I haven't checked. Uh, it kind of fell down to like 43-ish, kind of. What I've noticed is like every time they have a conference or major event in crypto, everything kind of falls and goes sideways for a while. I think most people are expecting it to moon. And so everyone sets their sell orders, mm-hmm. thinking they're going to sell on a on a peak. And then it right. just depresses the market, which is why we end up with this shit. Which, by the way, which is exactly what happened uh-huh. with Doge back in May of 2021, when everyone thought yeah. it was going to moon when he uh, when Elon was Showed hosting SNL. SNL. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, and then took a it massive shit. Shit the bed, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 72 cents. Damn. I don't think yeah. we're ever going to see that again. <laughs> nah, I think we'll see Bitcoin 72 grand before we see Dogecoin 72 cents. Oh, yeah. Yeah, most probably. Good times. Yeah. I mean, weird times are going to live in, but yeah. Sweet Caroline. That's, That's how we should end that. this episode. Good times yeah. never seem so seem good. So, so, so good. good. So, so good. good. So, so good. I've been in fine. Ba, ba, ba. Ba, ba. Believe never <laughs> Done. Done. Question question dun, to the dun. listeners. Where Can you tell how burnt out we are? <laughs> yeah. Anyways, I gotta go uh get back to firefighting. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit the gym and wait for uh wait for a letter from Neil Diamond's lawyer saying we're getting sued, which honestly would be fantastic publicity for the show. But yeah. I would ask for nothing more. Your Honor, we have a counterpoint. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Just show up in like suits and Red Sox hats. We are really, really broke. So broke. So broke. <laughs> Please donate. <laughs> <laughs> We're so going to jail. All right. All right. Later. Sayonara.